Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 12. Gospel of John chapter 12. Read the first 11 verses. grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. A large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but also that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not just leave us to the book of nature to learn about you, but you have given us your um, special revelation. You have revealed to us your will through your word. And so, Father, as we come back to it again, Father, we ask that this word would do its work in our hearts and our minds, and that it would transform us, that it would change us, that it would lead us to repentance and faith, that it would grow us and mature us into uh, full maturity. We ask that that would happen through the work of your Holy Spirit in me as I preach, and in all of us as we listen. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So this chapter marks an important division in this book, an important division in the Gospel of John. Chapter 12 is the last we read about Jesus speaking to unbelieving Jews. This is the last we hear him speaking to unbelieving Jews. From chapter 13 on, all that Jesus says is said privately to his disciples and, uh, and apostles, right? So, um, so this marks the, the end point. Of course, we're very close to his death. 
The text says that it is six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. In the previous chapter, we were told that Jesus went uh, after Lazarus is raised. Jesus then goes out to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. Now, it seems, he returns back to Bethany for the last time. The other Gospels tell us about the time when Jesus traveled from Ephraim to Bethany. Actually, a lot happens in that time period. A lot happens in those few days between uh, Ephraim and Bethany. John leaves out those matters, and it's interesting what he leaves out of his Gospel. Um, like his, his mother asking Jesus if her two sons could sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Not in John's gospel. Right? In Mark, actually, in Mark it says that James and John were the ones who went and asked Jesus if they could sit to the right and left hand in, in heaven. Uh, those, that, that event does not um, show up in John's gospel. Uh, we also see Jesus traveling through Jericho where he healed two blind men. He ministers to blind Bartimaeus. He, uh, there's the conversion of Zacchaeus. All of this happens in these few days. Um, the telling of the parable of the Minos, and all of that is not present in John's gospel. But that's what happens when you have independent witnesses, right? Writing from different um, standpoints, and you have independent witnesses writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, it be, the differences between the gospel point toward their authenticity, and if they were exactly alike, we might uh, think that they were not uh, witnesses and not independent, right? And John wrote for a different purpose and a different audience than the other writers of the gospel, and so he made decisions Led by the Holy Spirit, he made those decisions about what should, um, what should be written. Uh, <clears throat> in each of the synoptic gospels, uh, just before this time period we read about in John's gospel, uh, Jesus told his disciples what was just about to happen. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So that happened. We, we received that in the other Gospels, but again, not present in John's. But then the next verse of Luke, where, and I just read that from Luke, says, But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. I mean, that's a triple blast of they didn't get it, right? It's a restatement three times to sort of pound it home that those, that's the trinity of not understanding, right? And so, a triple statement about they're not getting what was going on. And, and we think about it in that, you know, the... the, the you know, Jesus going to trial, being mocked, dying, and rising again is just like the heart of the gospel, the, the, the intensity of Jesus' life. And yet those apostles who had heard Jesus saying that repeatedly, 
I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, in three days I'm going to rise. They did not get it. Now think about this, on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, where he would enter triumphantly and then die on the cross, he stops in Bethany. He goes back to this little, little town of Bethany where he had recently performed his most amazing, uh, the most astonishing miracle of his ministry, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus, Jesus spent his last earthly Sabbath with his friends in Bethany, with his close friends. He sat around a table and feasted with them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The outline of Jesus next week looks like this. So on Saturday, Jesus has dinner with his three friends here in Bethany. On Sunday, he entered into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. On Monday, he cursed the unfruitful fig tree. On Tuesday, he spoke in Jerusalem and then at the Mount of Olives, ending the day by eating with Simon the leper. On Wednesday, he stayed again in Bethany, took his ease in Bethany during that week. Uh, Mary anoints him again during that time period with more perfume. On Thursday, he was back in Jerusalem where he ate the Passover meal with his men and then was arrested at the end of the day. On Friday, he was crucified. So, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So that's what's going on on that Sabbath day. They're eating, they're lying, reclining around the table. What a joy would that be, no? What joy! The, the, this supper is a, is a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus will meet with those who have been risen from the dead, will recline around the table, right, as Lazarus did. Lazarus had a foretaste of the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, sitting there eating with Jesus. What did they talk about? What did they talk about? Did, did Lazarus you know, need counseling after having been in the grave for four days and having to return to this life, right? Did he, he probably needed a good buck up, camper. Keep going. Did they laugh as they feasted? Um, someday we will hear them talk about that day. Um, but until then, we have no record of any dialogue at that table or between Lazarus and his Savior, the Son of God. Notes, though, what was Martha doing? Martha was serving, it says. You know, it gets that in there. Martha was serving. She was always focused on logistics, wasn't she, Martha? She was the one who felt the, you know... She, she was the one who was annoyed by all the other people who just weren't getting things done, right? Which may be half of you in here. 
right? She was focused on logistics while Mary was focused on what was necessary. I remember this from Luke's gospel earlier in uh, a, a different time when Jesus and Mary and Martha were together uh, in Luke 10. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Perhaps that's the time they first met. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, if you get the double, the double name, you know the, sh- the head's shaking along with it. Martha, Martha. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Right? What did Mary choose? Well, it's what Mary chose in our passage here. Just one comment on those um, on this passage for those of us who get caught up in the details and have a hard time breaking away from logistics. Those of us who um, do not want our efficiency hampered in any way, right? Those of us who feel the constant weight of the to-do list, right? I cop to that. I mean, if you come to my office on a Friday morning and I'm working on a sermon and you try to talk to me, you'll get me to respond, but my mind will be elsewhere. I mean, I'll try to be polite, but it's just like I'll be making my mouth move, but I'm thinking about something entirely else, you know. Um, Martha worried, and that dictated her actions, and limited her view of Christ. Do you realize that? Her worry limited her, her view of Jesus Christ. Mary, on the other hand, had a better sense of what was necessary. Martha thought about the food and forgot about the guests. Mary thought about the guests and forgot about the food. And all of us are like, which, which side am I on? The team forgetting about the guests or the team forgetting about the food, right? Um, Mary thought about the guests and forgot about the food, and she is commended for that. She's commended for it. Even after Jesus corrects her, here, uh, here we are some time later, thinking about Martha now. Even after that that those events in Luke 10 that I told you about, even that, even now later, Martha is still in the same rut, right? Martha is caught up in the logistics. Also true to form, Mary does what? She's not caught up in the logistics, right? She cares for her guests, and in particular, she gives her Lord attention again. She's just focused on Jesus Christ, her Savior. She honors him. She worships him, right, while, while Martha is busy making the pot roast. 
and ironing the linen napkins. Right? She's off not thinking about her Lord. And Ryle remarks on this. He says, grace does not take away our peculiar characteristics. Right? Grace doesn't take away every bit of your personalities. And Martha and Mary's personalities are being demonstrated here. And yet it goes beyond personalities because Mary was commended for her attention and Martha was corrected for her inattention to Jesus. I mean, there are a thousand applications we could make from that, right? Um, That you could make out of that to your own life, and I'll leave it to you to make those applications, whether you're a Mary or whether you're a Martha or or when you're a Mary and when you're a Martha. And um, simply ask yourself about how you use your time and what portion of your time is spent on daily, daily logistics and what portion is spent on worship. And then you'll know whether you tend in the Martha direction or whether you tend in the Mary direction. There's one thing that's necessary. That's to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And still, some of you are objecting to... to um, what I'm saying in your minds. Mary then takes a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anoints Jesus. Perhaps that nard, that perfume was bought for Lazarus' burial and she has it uh, left over. It's not used. We don't know or we just don't know how she came to possess it. And so what was this perfume worth? It tells us it's very costly. Well, Judas, objecting to the waste as, you know, as one who would have liked that money to come into the coffers, which he was in charge of and which he used to steal from, right? He wanted that money to come in because he's like, woo, that's a windfall. Could have been sold could have been given to the poor, and I would have handled that for you. He says that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Earlier when Jesus told the disciples to go buy food for the 5,000, do you remember that? He goes and tells them to buy food for the 5,000 who were gathered to hear him. They say that they would have to spend 200 denarii to feed that many people. So add 50% to, more to that, and this could have been sold, um, the 300 denarii amount could have, been, uh, could have fed 7,500 people. Have you ever done any catering? <laughs> um, feeding that many people would cost a ton today. 7,500 people, one meal. So this is a lot of, this is an expensive perfume, right? This is, this is uncommon. What was the perfume of pure nard? Well, nard, I read, is an aromatic herb grown in the high pasture lands of the Himalayas between Tibet and India. Hard place to get to, hard place to get out of, 
right? And so here grows this aromatic herb, and it was very costly because it was very remote, had to be carried through mountain passes. Uh, that added to ex its expense. And the alabaster jar in which this pure nard is contained testified to the expense of, of what was in it. So Mary takes this wonderful perfume, this expensive perfume, and pours it on the feet of Jesus. And because of the great quantity of what she poured on his feet, it becomes necessary to um, wipe up the excess. And so she uses even her hair to wipe up the excess and to spread the excess about his feet. Now, why did she do this? Why did she do this? Well, she, why did she do the, the, um, the anointing? And she's quite thankful for the gift of her brother being back, right? I'm sure she's quite thankful. And she, through this act, may be just showing her gratitude to her Savior, that certainly has to be one reason. She's giving thanks to Christ for his mercy. She's doing it in a tangible way, even beyond just words coming out of her mouth. She wants to do a good deed to Jesus. And it's worth remembering that when we serve others, we're serving Jesus Christ. Right? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you as stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Mary had the wonderful opportunity of anointing Jesus' body and serving him directly, but you do too. Do you realize that? You do too, brothers and sisters. When you serve others, strangers, friends, family members, right, church family, you are acting directly upon Jesus Christ. What Mary did, you may do by showing mercy to others. You may not see Christ, but you serve him every time you relieve the suffering of your child. Or change the diaper of your elderly parents. Right? Or take a meal to a family in need. Or stop and help somebody and assist them to change a tire on their car. That reality ought to motivate you to love. You're doing it, yes, to relieve their suffering, but honestly, you're doing it out of love towards your Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? That should motivate you in your service. In your service of others, you are serving your Savior. I think it's safe to say, though, that the reason Mary does this act of anointing is out of her love for her Savior. This is, this is an act of love. She wants to show him her love. She may or may not have had a sense that Jesus was even close to his death. We don't know. She may have had some sense of that. Jesus is the one who speaks about this being an anointing for her, his burial, but she may not even have had that in mind when she did this. Um, and, but, but she does love him and so desires to bless him. 
Now, Mary's act of wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, what's going on there? Right? We read this and we're like, wow. It's astonishingly intimate, isn't it? Seems like an incredibly intimate sort of action. It, it is, um, is it simply because th- there was a lack of, of towels around? That doesn't seem to be credible. What is going on? One commentary says this, her action was in complete disregard of societal rules of propriety, which viewed with definitive disfavor the action of a woman who would loosen her tresses in the presence of men. Right? The modesty rule of, of the day would, would not even find it um, proper for her to, to lower her hair, let alone rub them on the feet of a man. And she not only, um, you know, she, she's, not, she's not only just unbinding her hair, but she's wiping his feet. Calvin calls the anointing of Jesus' feet excessive luxury, but says nothing more about it. Doesn't really help us with the, the, the hair thing. Most of the commentators blow over it or simply say that the gesture of wiping Jesus' feet with her hair is in evidence of her deep love for Jesus it, it certainly is that, but it is an action that would have easily been interpreted as sexual. Easily, those around her would have interpreted this action as sexual. Judas would have been the one who keyed into that, right? Judas would have been, Judas may have interpreted that way, and that's why he immediately figured out a way to interpret her actions with disgust, right? And, and though he determines to come at it obliquely by shrouding his disgust with words about the cost, he just wanted this to stop. Think of 1 Corinthians 11, Okay? There, the Apostle Paul, in the midst of a passage speaking of the relationship of man to God and man to woman and woman to man, speaks about what? Hair. Speaks about hair. And he states this. Here's what the passage says. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair... It is a glory to her. Okay? That, the woman's long hair is a glory to her. Now, what does that mean? It seems the practice of the Jews during Jesus' days was this. Jewish women always covered their heads and faces when in public. Some even considered it, uh, considered it meritorious to wear head covering all, uh, all day in their houses. The reason I mention that is it really is true that Mary letting down her hair and then wiping Jesus' feet would have been extraordinary. It would have been very strange. This is not something they would have seen every day. That combined with the use of the word glory that Paul uses when speaking of a woman's hair just makes it obvious that Mary is doing something here that would have opened her to all kinds of misinterpretations, right? 
It is not going too far to suggest that many of those there that day would have thought she was displaying the glory of her hair and wiping his feet in order to seduce Jesus. I am not saying that that was her intent. I don't think it was. But what I am saying is that it could have been interpreted that way. And likely was by Judas and others of the apostles. Interestingly, in the other Gospels, it is not just Judas who objects to her actions here. It's, the, it's all of the apostles that object to what she does. There was another time when Jesus had his feet wiped with a woman's hair. This, is, this happened earlier in Jesus' ministry and it was not done by this Mary. Um, here's that scene, Luke 7. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, wiping, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him, saw this. The Pharisee, not the Pharisees. The Pharisee. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Right? So he's interpreting this as inappropriate. Now, she wet Jesus' feet with her tears and and kissed his feet, which we don't read that Mary did, but the reaction of that Pharisee shows us how her actions were interpreted. It was viewed as the sinful actions of a sinful woman. And how does Jesus respond to her actions, to this earlier uh, wiping of, of feet? Um, well, we have this amazing interaction between Jesus and the Pharisee and the woman. And so Jesus in this scene turns toward the woman, it says in the passage, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, who's elsewhere, right? He's like turning his back to Simon, the guy he's about to address. He turns to the woman and addresses the man obliquely. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little." Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Her action was love. Her action was love. It was not sin and it was not sinful. Obviously, it opened her up to judgment, but the intimate action arose from love and not from lust. So too with Mary. It's so intimate, it's awkward but it's love. It's love. It was an incredibly intimate action, but it was appropriate. How then should we apply this? 
Well, how many of you despise others when they show exuberant affection for their Savior? Think about it. Think about it. How many of you, and it's 100% of you, despise others when they show exuberant affection for their Savior? You are taking after the Pharisee and Judas, attributing sinful motives where none exists. How many of us still despise others who raise their hands in worship? I want to worship my Savior, and the least I can do is use my body. And yet there are some among you who despise me for doing that, despise those around you for doing that. You're like this Pharisee. How many of us would have responded to David as his wife Michael did when she despised him for his worship of God? How many of us witness acts of love and and faith toward Jesus and cynically deconstruct them? We do this all the time. To salve our own own guilty conscience, we convince ourselves that others' faithful works and acts of love toward Christ are acts of unfaithfulness and unlove. We're twisted. When someone corrects us, we interpret it as a sign of their ignorance and dislike of us. Right? When someone sacrifices their money to serve Christ, we, we like to think of a hundred different things that that money could have gone toward that would have been better. Just like Judas did. Now look at the contrast. Look at the contrast here. Judas witnesses the exuberant act of love toward Jesus and responds with complaints. Why was this 300? He's over there like, ah. He suddenly starts thinking about investments and fiscal prudence and the poor. The poor. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Poor Mary, she should have consulted with Judas before she worshipped Jesus Christ. She should have preferred some sort of tangible offering to God that could be quantified on a balance sheet rather than an intangible offering of love to Christ, a giving up of her wealth for her God. She should have, she should have really done some good, you know, quantifiable. Again, that is often our mindset, isn't it? Prayer, worship, fellowship, growing in the knowledge of the Scriptures, those all seem like, you know, selfish and self-centered ways to serve God when we could be transforming culture, feeding the poor, digging wells, bandaging wounds, you know, ending sex trafficking, providing for our families, all those sorts of things, right? We always have a tendency to underestimate works of worship and devalue them in comparison to works of mercy, don't we? Fact of the matter is, is God demands to be worshipped and our primary purpose is to sing praises to the greatness of the triune God. 
We must perform works of mercy, but we must not value them more than acts of worship. We have to do all kinds of good works and works of mercy, right? But, but not, not in the place of acts of worship. God sits enthroned on the acts of mercy of his people? No, on the praises of his people, Scripture says. We are to love him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We are to worship him in the splendor of his holiness. And I'd go so, so far as to say that uh, that activity of worship is primary and works of, mer- works of mercy are a far secondary. Okay, without love to our God, our love toward our neighbor is a sham. Right? The second table of the law follows from the first table of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. Judas was utilitarian, right? That utilitarian would forbid the very worship of God. Judas didn't recognize who Christ was. If he had, he never would have made the suggestion that he made. He never would have belittled the actions of Mary in this blessing on Jesus Christ. He would not have done that. Jesus responds to Judas by telling him to leave her alone. He's just like, he's just let her alone. He's just like, be quiet, Judas. Leave her alone. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, isn't that the point I was just making? You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. We could come up with the perfect economic system, couldn't we? Well, we couldn't. We could figure the the perfect way to facilitate and to encourage charitable giving. And we will still have the poor with us. Of course, the only way to have a perfect economic system and perfect care for others would be to eradicate sin. That would be the only way. Right? And, And that will never happen through any human effort, that will not happen until Christ returns, then all the dissonance of sin will be silenced and love will reign there. And because love reigns there, economics will be without dissonance. What Mary did was right. Right? What Mary did was right. Instead of thinking of the poor, instead of thinking of the poor, She gave herself fully to the presence of God. The honor of God must come first. Now, here's some Ryle. Ryle says it for me so that you can take his word and not mine. We may surely learn from this verse that relieving the poor, however good a work, is not so important a work as doing honor to Christ. In times like these, it is well to remember this. This, He's writing... Uh, early 1900s. Not a few seem to think all religion consists in giving temporal help to the poor, yet there are evidently occasions when the relief of the poor must not be allowed to supersede the direct work of honoring Christ. 
Doubtless it is well to feed and clothe and nurse the poor, but it is never to be forgotten that to glorify Christ among them is far better. Moreover, it is much easier to give temporal than spiritual help. For we have our reward in thanks and gratitude in the praise of man. To honor Christ is far harder and gets us no praise at all. Boy, that motivates a lot of people's activities, just that little bit of gratitude they get from people. But to serve Christ, there's not much thanks that comes from man when you serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the worship of God, all the acts of man, think of this, without the worship of God, all the acts of man, all the works done to relieve the distress of the poor are simply the social gospel, which is no gospel at all. They are works that arise out of concern only for bodies and not for souls in the judgment to come. They are attempts of man to deal with the guilt of sin without going to the only source of actual forgiveness, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. And conversely, this needs to be said, the, the one who says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Perhaps that's our particular sin as conservative Reformed Christians, right? We make a show of loving God and refuse to love our neighbors for fear of looking like social justice warriors. We toe the, the conservative line and forget about what God requires of, which, of what God requires of us, which is to love our neighbor. Well, enough on that. Verses nine through 11 is left. And they close out the scene. A large crowd of the Jews had come to Bethany because Jesus was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, it says, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. The word about Lazarus was spreading like wildfire, and people just wanted to see this guy. I mean, what does he look like? What, what happened to him? I mean, is, is he really alive? I want to see this with my own eyes. But not all wanted to see Lazarus. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. And I always, when, when the, that statement comes up, I want to be like in a Shakespearean play where you boo the bad characters and you praise the, the good characters, right? And when we read that verse, we should all go, boo! You know? But it's more than a boo. It's such wickedness, right? They have a rival who's just risen from the dead and they're going to kill him to get him out of the way. Why? Why did they want to kill him? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Such is the way unbelievers will meet even the greatest sins the greatest signs, the greatest works of God's power, right? Such is the way unbelievers will greet signs of God's power. Judas saw the works of Jesus and walked with him daily, and yet for a bag of silver, he arranged his arrest, right? The chief priests saw the people going after Jesus, saw the fruit of his own miracles, and they would do away with the source of their awe, right? Putting to death the man who had just died and been resurrected. 
That's how the world will respond to the greatest miracles right before their eyes. Mary loved Jesus. Mary loved Jesus and her works showed that. Judas and the chief priests did not love Jesus and their works showed that. Right? Consider both of their works and meditate on them. The contrast. Resist doing the devil's work, attempting to obscure God's power. Right? And love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And dear brothers and sisters, do not hide that faith, that light under a bushel basket. Scripture says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, right? That they may see your good works. That's what was happening with Lazarus. Jesus had done this good work and and people were coming to Jesus by faith, right? And the chief priests wanted to get it out of here and obscure it. We, too, often obscure God's power. And one of the powers that that God has given to us that we could demonstrate every day is by sharing His Word. Sharing His Word. Don't hide it. Share His Word. 